Thank you. I'd like you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Jude. We're in the process of adding a staff position in our church, and we've made that opening known to certain seminaries and uh, placement services. And so over the last several months, we've been reading a lot of resumes. And resumes are valuable. They give you a quick, precise description of an individual, his work-related history, his qualifications, his goals, his ambitions. And, of course, resumes are usually pretty flattering because you write them yourself. In our passage this morning, verses 8 to 16, I see a resume. It's the resume of a false teacher. But it's different from a normal resume because it's written by God and it's not very flattering. It cuts through the facade, it lifts the sheepskin to reveal the wolf, and it tells it like it is. Now, typically, a resume has items grouped under certain topics such as education, objective, work experience, character references, personal interests, and those are the areas that I see in our passage as God evaluates false teachers. Number one, we see education in verses 8 to 10. He may say, I've got a B.A. in philosophy from Columbia. I've got a Master of Theology from Edinburgh. I've got a Doctor of Religion from Princeton. But God says and sums up his education in one little phrase in verse 10 when he says, they do not understand. In fact, they are like unreasoning animals. You know how much a false teacher knows? Nothing. He knows nothing because he is unregenerate. He is actually a natural man. He's an unsaved man. And 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. He has no capacity to understand spiritual truth. And so years of training, years of preparation, years of study will be absolutely useless to an unregenerate mind. doesn't matter what seminary he goes to, what Bible school he studies in, he has no capacity to understand spiritual truth. And that's why Jude tells us in verse 8, yet in the same manner these men also by dreaming. Now there are two Greek words for dreaming used in the New Testament. One is the Greek word honoros, which means a vision from God. It's used in places like Matthew 1.20, where it says, An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. It's a dream that brings revelation. The other word is a Greek word, in hypnos, which means literally, in sleep. That which appears in sleep, an ordinary dream. And that is the word Jude uses here, because he wants to depict to us the status, spiritually, of these false teachers. They are in dreamland. What happens when you dream? You lose touch with reality. You lose touch with what is real. You know anybody who talks in their sleep? See some of you looking at your spouse. Did you ever have a conversation with them? Some people can do that. They carry on a conversation in their dream. Jude says that's what the false teacher's like when it comes to spiritual things. He's so out of touch, he's, he's living in fantasy, he's believing what's false rather than what is true. When you wake up from a dream, you say, that was a weird dream. But you know what? A false teacher never wakes up. He sees life that way. 
And that explains why in the face of illustrations like the children of Israel in verse 5 and the angels in verse 6 and Sodom and Gomorrah in verse 7, they follow the same path. Because they're just in la-la land. They're in dreamland. They're just going along. And with all the warnings ahead of them, they continue down that road. And what does it lead to? Three things, he tells us at the end of verse 8. Physically, spiritually, and intellectually, they're affected. Physically, they defile the flesh. They contaminate the flesh. They pollute the flesh. Now, the flesh is already polluted. Romans 7, 18, Paul says, For I know that in me that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. And yet here are teachers, under the guise of trying to deliver you from sin, they are actually taking you further into sin. They are doing that to those who listen to them because verse 4 says they turn the grace of our God into licentiousness, unrestrained desires, and they're doing it in their own lives. They are riding the flesh to its ultimate end. Now, that shouldn't surprise us too much because there's only one agency who can control the flesh, and that's the Spirit of God. And the last phrase in verse 19 says they are devoid of the Spirit. They don't have the Spirit, so they have no capacity for obedience. And so physically, a false teacher is a slave to his fleshly lusts. Recent article in the Post-Dispatch named a prominent denomination said that they were facing legal claims in excess of $1 billion from lawsuits aimed at their church leaders accused of child molestation. And they put together a task force to try to establish guidelines to deal with the problem. It's so prevalent. False teachers, they defile the flesh. That's physically. What do they do spiritually? He says spiritually they reject authority. The word authority there is the Greek word kurios. It means Lord. They reject the lordship of Christ. Now they won't come out and say that, but that's exactly what they do. They reject his lordship over their life. And one of the main tactics they use to do that is to undermine the truth of God's Word. If they can cast doubt on God's Word, then they don't have any authority. I'm sure you heard of the group that did the search for the historical Jesus. A group of seminary professors and pastors who got together to try to decide which statements of Jesus were legitimate. And after spending months together they came to the conclusion that only one statement that Jesus made was acceptable to them. The rest of Scripture they just cut out. They reject the Lordship of Christ. Why? Because they already have a Lord themselves. You see, you can tell a true teacher because he says with Jude in verse 1, I am the bondservant of Jesus Christ. And then a third area is affected, and that's the intellectual area. In the last phrase in verse 8, he says, They revile angelic majesties. Or literally, they blaspheme glories. They are arrogant. They are irreverent when it comes to the spiritual realm, and they actually blaspheme glories. Now, that word glories is used in 2 Peter 2.10, and there it's clearly speaking of angels. So he's talking about angelic beings here. And in the context... We have an illustration in verse 9 of reviling Satan. And so he's not just talking about good angels. He's really specifically talking about fallen angels, 
demons. They revile demons. And you say, well, how do they do that? Well, I think there's a couple obvious ways they do that. Number one, by arrogantly denying their existence. There are a multitude of preachers today who will tell you that they're too intelligent to really believe that there are fallen angels, that there's a real Satan. And so they paint him as this guy in a red suit with horns and a tail and a pitchfork, and then they laugh about him. They arrogantly deny the existence. There's a second way they revile them, and that is by arrogantly attacking them. There are others who go the other extreme, and they go out and they chase Satan around, and they try to find him. And then when they find him, they call him names and demand him to do things and command that he do things. That's a dangerous thing. It first... Peter 5, 8, and 9, we're told, Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking one, someone to devour, but resist him. See, Scripture says we're to resist him. We're not to revile him. That's a dangerous thing, and we need to be careful. I get real nervous when I hear people reviling Satan and, and, and speaking arrogantly against him. That's a dangerous position to take. I even get nervous. We, we got this song we sing... I got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. And about the 16th verse of that song says, and if the devil doesn't like it, he can sit on a tack. I don't like that verse in light of this passage because I got to be careful what I say as an individual against angelic beings, even fallen angelic beings. And this passage is warning me about that. And to illustrate it, Jude tells us in verse 9, But Michael the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Now he tells us an incident here where Michael and Moses had a dispute, or Michael and Satan had a dispute about the body of Moses. Now this is not an incident you will find in the Old Testament. Jude, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, gives us an insight we don't find in the Old Testament. Now, that's not uncommon in the New Testament. If you look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8, you'll find there that Paul gives us the two names of the magicians in Egypt. It's not recorded in the Old Testament. In James chapter 5, and verse 17, James tells us that Elijah prayed that it wouldn't rain for three and a half years. You don't read that in the Old Testament. And here in Jude, verses 14 and 15, he's even going to give us a prophecy of Enoch. It's not recorded in the Old Testament. And so here he gives us an incident that happened. It involved Michael, the archangel, which means the chief angel, and it involved Satan, and the dispute was over the body of Moses. Now, we know from the Old Testament that there's some mystery about the body of Moses because Deuteronomy 34, 5, and 6 says that Moses died and God buried his body in a valley in the land of Moab and no man knows his burial place to this day. No man knows. Apparently Satan does. And there was a dispute over his body. Now, what caused the dispute? Well, most commentators say that God buried him in an isolated place for fear that the children of Israel would make a shrine out of his burial place. Now, they probably would have. If they'd known where he was buried, they, they thought so highly of Moses, they probably would have worshipped the burial place. And so God had to hide it from them. If you look at the children of Israel, they had that pattern throughout their history. In fact, they took that bronze serpent that they had to put up in the wilderness and eventually worshipped it as an idol. And so he had to keep this away. And so on that basis, some commentators say 
that Satan was trying to come and get Moses' body to bring it back to the children of Israel so that they would worship it. I don't think that's what's going on here. And the reason I don't think that is because there's another piece of information we're given in the New Testament about Moses. Remember when Jesus appeared on the Mount of Transfiguration? Who was there with him? Moses and Elijah. How did Moses get there? He must have been resurrected. So at some point, Moses' body was resurrected out of the ground. You say, well, what did Michael have to do with the resurrection? Well, let me read you a verse you probably have heard many times and maybe you haven't paid real attention to. 1 Thessalonians 4.16 For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. When Christ returns to raise the believers, did you catch that? The voice of the archangel? Who's the archangel? Michael. Michael is going to shout at that time. So he's somehow intricately involved in resurrection. And so when Moses' body is raised to be prepared for the transfiguration, Michael is there. And Moses... Or, I'm going to get these names messed up. Satan is arguing with Michael about that situation. Now, what do you think Satan said to Michael when he's getting ready to raise Moses? Well, let me remind you of something. Revelation 12.10 tells us that Satan is the accuser of the brethren and that he accuses us night and day before God. Satan is up there all the time saying, did you see what Dan Green just did? Did you see that? Can you believe he says he's a child of God? Did you see that? And the refreshing thing is that 1 John 2, 1 says we have an advocate. We have a defense lawyer, Jesus Christ. And he's standing there too, and he's saying, yeah, I saw that, but I died for it. So he's our Johnny Cochran. That's, that's a pretty bad illustration. Isn't it? You, you have to stretch that a little bit. He is our perfect advocate. He's there saying, I covered it. I covered it. And so... Michael comes to get Moses, and Satan says, where are you going with him? You can't have him. See, Hebrews 2.14 tells us that Satan has the power of death right now. And so he said, I'm going to hang on to this guy. You can't have him. And what would he say? He's a murderer. He killed an Egyptian. You can't, have, you can't take him. And besides that, he disobeyed God. He struck the rock when he wasn't supposed to, and that's why he didn't make it into the promised land. You can't take him. And so this dispute goes on. But what, what I want you to notice is what Michael says to Satan. Michael doesn't say, why you dirty... No. What does he say? Verse 9. It says, he did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. He wouldn't even revile Satan. But he simply said, the Lord, that's the Lord's job, the Lord rebuke you. Now look at that in contrast to these false teachers, verse 10. But these men revile the things which they do not understand. Michael, the chief angel, won't even revile Satan, but these men step forward and do it. Because they think they know all about the spiritual realm. And God says the truth is, they know nothing. And then the rest of verse 10 says... And the things which they do know by instinct, like unreasoning animals, by these things, they are destroyed. 
They claim to know all about the spiritual realm. They claim to know more than the common man. The truth is, they only know what the animals know. They're down at the animal level. They're just operating on instincts. And he says the ultimate result of that is going to be destruction, just like a wild animal. His instincts tell him to attack, and sometimes his instincts tell him to attack the wrong person or the wrong animal, and he's destroyed. And he says that's the same thing that will happen to them. So in the resume of a false teacher, the first category is education, and God says they have no understanding. They're just operating in a dream world on instincts like animals. Second area is the objective, verse 11. He may say, well, my objective is to serve in a local church using my gift to to bring people to faith and maturity in Christ. But God says, verse 11, Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, and for pay they have rushed headlong into the error of Balaam, and they have perished in the rebellion of Korah. God pronounces woe because their objective is not honorable, it's dishonorable. They have followed the pattern of some well-known apostates from the past. And notice the progression. They have gone in the way of Cain, they have rushed headlong into the error of Balaam, and they have perished in the rebellion of Korah. It's progressive. They've gone, then they've rushed, and then they've perished. There's quite a contrast here between Jesus' words in John 14, 6. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. They have rejected the way to go the way of Cain. They have rejected the truth to go into the error of Balaam, and they have rejected the life to perish with Korah. Jude mentions three individuals who demonstrate the objectives of false teachers. First of all, he mentions Cain. In Genesis chapter 4, God has set a time for Cain and Abel to bring their offerings to the Lord. And they knew that God required a blood sacrifice. God had made that clear to Adam and Eve. When they sinned, God killed animals and used the skins to clothe them. The idea that you need a blood sacrifice to cover sin. And apparently God had already told them very clearly this because we read in Hebrews chapter 11 verse 4 that Abel brought his sacrificed animals by faith. God said, that's what I require. He said, I'm going to bring it because you said you required it, and I'm going to bring it by faith. And God accepted Abel's offering. Cain, on the other hand, we're told, brought the fruit of the ground. He said, well, I know God says he wants a blood sacrifice, but I'm just going to bring these vegetables and this fruit out of my garden. I worked real hard for it. I mean, especially after the curse, it's not easy to raise good vegetables. And so he brings them to God and he offers them to God thinking God will accept this and God rejects his offering. And if you read Genesis chapter 4, God gives him a second chance. And he says, I want you to repent. Go get the blood sacrifice. There's still time. Go get the blood sacrifice and bring what I require. And rather than repenting, what did Cain do? He went out and killed his brother Abel. So what's the way of Cain? Cain is the father of all false religion. The way of Cain is natural religion without shed blood. It's depending on self-effort rather than sacrifice. And it's relying on good works instead of faith. Do we see anybody today following the way of Cain? False teachers all around us. Second example is Balaam. We read about Balaam in Numbers 22 to 25. He was a prophet for hire. 
children of Israel were moving toward Canaan, King of Moab got nervous. And so he got a hold of Balaam, and he said, I'll pay you to pronounce a curse on the children of Israel. And Balaam said, well, I don't think I can do that. And the king of Moab said, well, I'll write you a blank check. Whatever you want, I'll pay you. And Balaam said, well, maybe we can work something out. And so he set out to curse the children of Israel. And you remember, Balaam's the fellow whose donkey had more spiritual insight than he did. Three times he went out to curse the children of Israel, and every time God used his lips to pronounce blessing on Israel. And so the king of Moab said, I'm not paying you. You just, you just went out there and blessed them. You didn't curse them. I'm not paying you. And so Balaam said, well, maybe we can work something else out. I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll give you a different strategy. Numbers 25, he says, you send your most beautiful women over to Israel and seduce them and then introduce idolatry, and that'll be even more effective than cursing them. And guess what? It worked. And as a result of that, at Baal Peor, God sent a plague and destroyed 24,000 Israelites. That was the work of Balaam. We read about his end in Numbers 31. It says he was killed by the armies of Israel. And yet many today rush headlong after his error, selling themselves to the highest bidder. Third example is Korah. We read about Korah in Numbers 16. He was a Levite, but he wasn't satisfied. He grumbled because Aaron and his sons got to be the priests. And Moses got to be the leader, and he didn't like that. And so he said, you know, everybody in Israel is the leader. And we don't have to have priests. We can all go right to God. And he grumbled, and he got 250 people to come alongside him and stand and grumble with him. And so Moses said, well, all right. You want to be a priest? You think God will accept you if you go around the priesthood? I tell you what, you just come and be priests. Bring your little fire pans and put incense in them, and you come to the tabernacle and you be priests. So that's what they did. They got their fire pans and their incense, and they came to the door of the tabernacle, and they started to come in, and Moses said, I wouldn't stand too close. And had everybody kind of move back. And you know what happened? The Bible says the earth opened up and swallowed Korah, and Nathan and Abiram, the leaders, and fire came out of heaven and consumed the 250 followers. God wasn't very pleased with that. Now, what was the rebellion of Korah? Specifically, his rebellion was that he rejected God's mediator. God said, you've got to come to me in the Old Testament through the priesthood. They didn't want to do that. They rejected God's mediator. Who is God's mediator today? 1 Timothy 2.5 says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And Jesus said in John 14.6, No one comes to the Father but through me. He is the one mediator. And people today are still following the rebellion of Korah because you can hear people all around today saying, you don't have to come God's way. There are many ways to God and everybody's going to get there the same. It's a lie. So in his resume of a false teacher, the second category is the objective. And God says, like Cain, they come the way of good works. Like Balaam, they preach whatever message sells. And like Korah, they reject God's mediator. Third area work experience, verses 12 and 13. He may say, well, I've got 30 years experience pastoring, teaching, 
preaching, but God has a different assessment. And in verses 12 to 13, he gives six analogies to describe a false teacher. The first one in verse 12 is that they're hidden reefs. These men are those who are hidden reefs in your love feast when they feast with you. Now, some of your Bibles may say that they're spots. That's not the best translation because this word means a sunken rock. It's the idea of someone who's coming along in their ship and this rock is just under the surface where they can't see it and their ship hits it and they're shipwrecked because of that rock, that hidden rock. False teachers are hidden rocks. And where do they hide? He says they hide in your love feasts. In the New Testament church, they came together on the first day of the week. It was a work day in Israel, so they came together in the evening and they brought their meals. They brought food and they had a meal together called a love feast. They shared it together. Some people were well-to-do, some people were slaves and had nothing, and so they gathered together and they were supposed to share their food. You know, that was a problem in Corinth. They weren't sharing their food. But they came together for this love feast. And in the context of that meal, they broke bread and remembered the Lord Jesus' death on their behalf. And Jude says, these false teachers are hidden reefs in your love feast. They're at the love feast, hugging everybody and welcoming everybody and having fellowship with everybody. And the truth is that they are seeking to cause you shipwreck in your faith. Second thing he says is that they're selfish shepherds. Verse 12 says, Without fear, they're caring for themselves. That word caring is the Greek word poimen, which means shepherd. And so literally, it is they shepherd themselves. They have the title pastor or shepherd, but they're not interested in the flock. They're interested in themselves. God had that same problem in the Old Testament. In Ezekiel 34, 8, he said, The shepherds fed themselves and did not feed my flock. If you read the rest of Ezekiel 34, it says that the shepherds were actually devouring the flock. They were supposed to be caring for them. They were killing them and eating them. And that's what's happening here. And Jude says they do so without fear. They're doing that and they have no fear of God and what he thinks about it. They're just going ahead, feeding and caring for themselves. Third, it says they are clouds without water carried along by winds. They are clouds that promise rain but have no water. Now, out at our house, it has not rained for 30 days and 30 nights. And Thursday night, about 10 o'clock, we heard some lightning and thunder, and my wife and I actually went out on the deck to see the rain coming. I mean, we're just, we're in the rain right now. Our yard looks so bad, it's pitiful. So we're out there, and we see these clouds rolling in. They're kind of dark, and we're pointing at them saying, that looks like a good one. You know, it's coming right over. It come over, and the lightning's around and everything, and it, it blow right by. And then, here, here it comes. That's a good one. And here it comes, and it just spit on us a little bit. Just kind of, ah, ah, I think it's coming. And it'd be gone. See, that's what he's saying these false teachers are like. They're promising a lot, but they're not delivering anything. They're promising refreshment, but all they're doing is a little spitting, and there's no, uh, there's no refreshment coming at all. You ever heard people say, I go to church all the time, and I get absolutely nothing out of it? Why is that? Clouds without water. You have somebody standing in a pulpit who doesn't even know Jesus Christ, he's not going to give you a whole lot of spiritual refreshment. Fourth analogy. He says they are autumn trees without fruit. Now, in the autumn, it was time to pick the fruit. He's talking about the season for picking fruit. But guess what? They have no fruit. And not only that, he says they are, notice, doubly dead. Why are they doubly dead? 
Because not only do they have no fruit, but they have no root. There's no fruit growing on these trees, and there's no capacity for it because they have no root. They are doubly dead trees. And then fifth analogy in verse 13, he says they are wild waves of the sea casting up their own shame like foam. Ever been on the beach after a storm or during a storm? As a result of that storm, dredges up all kinds of scum that come up on the beach. And that's the analogy here. These false teachers are just foaming up their shame as they speak and as they live. And then the sixth analogy, they are wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. Now, stars don't wander. Stars are on definite orbits prescribed by God. But he's not talking here about real stars. He's talking about fake stars, false stars. We call them shooting stars, meteors. You see them every once in a while across the sky, just blaze across and then they're gone. In fact, the word wandering here is the same word we saw in verse 11 for error. They are false stars. He says false teachers are like that. They give you a big flash and then they disappear into an eternal night. Fourth area, character references. On most resumes, you find character references and people who say, well, he's got flawless character, he's conscientious, he's virtuous, he's outstanding. But God gives us one reference, and for that he goes all the way back to the seventh generation of man to Enoch. Verse 14, and about these also Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Now, he tells us that Enoch is the seventh from Adam. That's to distinguish him from Cain's son, who was also called Enoch. He wants us to know which one he's talking about. Most of us are familiar with Enoch. He's the fellow who didn't die. Genesis 5, 24 says, And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Now, this passage tells us that Enoch was a prophet. Enoch prophesied about false teachers. And what did he prophesy? He prophesied judgment. That judgment came upon the people in Enoch's day at the flood... And it still is going to come in a future day when Jesus returns in judgment. Probably the most interesting thing about Enoch is that he had a son named Methuselah. Now, back in that day, names meant a lot. I mean, you just didn't name somebody because you liked the sound of a name. You named them because it meant something. Eve meant life giver. Cain meant acquired from the Lord. Seth meant appointed Methuselah is from two Hebrew words. One is meth, which means to die, and the other is selah, which means to send. Methuselah means when he dies, it shall be sent. When Methuselah dies, what will be sent? The judgment that he prophesied about. So every time he called his son, it was a prophecy. When he dies, it will be sent. It's a long name. If you go back to Genesis 5 to 7, take your calculator and figure out when Methuselah died, and you can, he died in the very year that the flood came. 
He died that year, and there came the judgment, just like he prophesied. But you know what's interesting about Methuselah? He lived longer than anybody else. 969 years. What's it tell me about God? He's patient. When he dies, the judgment will come, and God let him live longer than anybody else because he held off the judgment. And finally, Methuselah died, and God's judgment came. But in our prophecy here, Enoch tells us something about false teachers. And what is his assessment of them? Four times you read the word ungodly. Ungodly, 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 ungodly. Not a very good character reference. Which brings us to our fifth and final point. Personal interests. Verse 16. He may say, well, I'm interested in sports, reading, taking long walks with my wife, uh, serving my fellow man. Those are my interests. But God says you're only interested in one thing and that is yourself. Verse 16. These are grumblers, finding fault, following after their own lusts. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. Now, there are some things there that we've already covered, and so we'll go over this real quickly. It says there were grumblers. This is the only place that word is used in the New Testament, but it's used in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament to describe the murmurings of the children of Israel in the wilderness. They were never happy about anything. And so these individuals are griping against God, they're bellyaching, and they're complaining. And then it says they're finding fault. That's from two Greek words that means to blame for your lot or to blame for your condition. They're blaming God for the condition they find themselves in. The grumbling is their attitude. Now here's the expression of it. They complain about what God has caused them to go through. And then thirdly, it says they're following after their own lusts. They are not governed by the will of God. They are governed by their own desires. They're habitually seeking self-satisfaction. And that's why they're grumbling, because they can never get enough. And then it says they speak arrogantly. That word literally means they are overswollen. They are full of themselves, puffed up with pride. And then lastly, he says they are flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. They say what people want to hear. They tickle people's ears. The question for them is not what is true. The question is, what will gain me the most? I have to be honest with you. As I've been going through this study in Jude, my wife has been very nervous. Because uh, she's worried about newcomers who come here and think that all I do is slam other people. And so she's biting her nails while I'm up here that I'm going to say something off the cuff that I'll regret. Um, I would remind you that to be faithful to God, we have to teach the whole counsel of God. This is not a kind of passage I would pick and choose to preach on because it's not very encouraging. I mean, I don't get too many high fives on this stuff. You know, hey, boy, that was tremendous, encouraging. It's not encouraging. It's discouraging to read about this kind of thing going on. And yet we need to know it. If we're going to be faithful and if we're going to recognize these things, we have to understand this resume. We have to realize that when it comes to this resume of a false teacher, when it comes to education, they have no understanding. When it comes to their objective, they are going the way of Cain and Balaam and Korah. When it comes to their work experience, they are hidden reefs trying to shipwreck you. And they're clouds without water. When it comes to their character references, Enoch's the only one they need because he's a pretty good character reference. I mean, the Bible tells us that Enoch walked with God 300 years. And he looks at these false teachers and he says they are ungodly. And then what comes to their personal interests, they are totally selfish. That's negative stuff. 
But we need to understand that and we need to hold that resume up because there are a lot of people around us who are false teachers. And they will continually try to get in and destroy God's work and God's people. And so we always need to be reminded and careful. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you for this passage of scripture. And as we said, even though it's very sobering, we thank you for the truth that it reveals. And Father, I would pray most of all for those of us who know your truth, who know you because of a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. I pray that reading this kind of passage would not bring us pride. That we might not sit back and say, look at how much I know. But that we might rest in you and realize that apart from your grace, we would be exactly the way this passage describes. And Lord, we thank you for the saving grace of Jesus Christ. We pray that as we understand these truths, that we might protect it and defend it and proclaim it for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name.